So we are uh, highlighting this morning some of our community service partners, and you should have received this pamphlet. When you came in, describe some of our, our ministry partners that we work with locally. These are great opportunities to, uh, to connect and serve, or you could just pray for these folks or learn a little bit more about those that we partner with. And you know, we've been working through this sermon series called Everyday People of God. You know, what does it look like to be God's people in the everyday of life, and we've been using these graphics to sort of think about this is a graphic that represents the church gathered like we are right now. We, we gather together at certain times and during the week uh, to do certain things, and, uh, but the bulk of our time we spend scattered about at places of work and neighborhoods and schools and throughout the community in different ways. And one of the ways that we live out our faith is in service to others, and, and some people serve through ministries of the church and some of our community partners, like Chris's story, he shares, uh, serves with one of our homeless shelter ministries that we partner with, or someone like Cindy who works with a community organization and she scatters about whether you're a coach or you help in a school or whatever you do as you serve, you are God's people in those places as you are serving others. And so we just wanted to make you aware of opportunities that are out there. Or if you're like Tim Hupe, you're a, a missionary in Thailand, he, has, he chooses to use some of his extra time to coach soccer and just just... Uh, ways of sharing his life with other people in the name of Jesus, and this is what we do together. So, And uh, so, like I said, we're working through this sermon series, thinking about what it means to be the everyday people of God, uh, looking at the letter First Peter. And uh, I, did, I mentioned also that it is the season of Lent, so the season where the church prepares to celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, we are going to be having our Easter services at the Andover High School uh, Collin Center. That's the, the reality of being one church in, in two locations. We want to get together on Easter Sunday to celebrate together. We want to be in the same place. So uh, we, we hold our services over there just simply so that everybody can have a seat to sit in. We do not, uh, we've over, we would overfill this room certainly, and uh, especially as we bring the North Andover folks over. And we just want you to be able to invite people, neighbors and family, want you to have a seat and a place to park your car. So that's why we do that. I would actually love to have one service in one location with everybody that is Free Christian Church to celebrate together. There is not a venue in our area that will hold us. And, and praise God for that. So we'll have two services, and because it's coming in March, we just want to put that on your radar sooner than later. But when we go to the Collins Center to worship, it's this. Ready? See this? Watch. It's a church gathered in a different location. See? We usually gather here, and we just go here, and we can then turn it back. So. That's one way to look at it. We, we've been, over the last couple of weeks, just by way of review, we've been thinking about what does it mean to be the people of God in different contexts, in different front lines of our lives. And two weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be the people of God at work particularly in the context if you have a, a boss who is harsh. And that resonated with a number of you. And what does it mean to be God's people if you're in that type of a work environment? What does it mean to honor God? Last week, we, Pastor Greg talked about what does it mean to be the people of God in the context of marriage, on the front line of your marriage, and how uh, we live that out in different dynamic. And he brought uh, some interesting perspective to a very difficult passage of Scripture and uh, it, it was interesting. I got a lot of feedback. I got very thoughtful um, 
note that someone wrote me about their thoughts on the text, a very difficult text, very, uh, it can be very almost troubling, and we wrestle with God's word. And if, you ever, if we ever come across a text that's difficult for you or a message, it, there's only so much ground we can cover in a 25-minute you know, sermon. But if you ever have questions, you know, feel free to email me or call the office and would love to talk and continue to work out some of these things for you. Um, but it's been, anyway, just a very thought-provoking kind of a stuff we've been working through. So today, we're talking about everyday interactions. So as you go about your day, whether you're going about the day as a, to gather with people from church or to scatter about, you're going to interact with people uh, all the time. Yesterday was a day for me full of interactions. I just was around people all day. I was out to breakfast, and I ran into someone from the church, and we had a, a nice a brief conversation. That was sweet. And then I visited the New Life Luncheon, which is a senior adult ministry of our church. Once a month, seniors from all over the community get together and share a meal and, and music and share the Word of God together. And it was just, I saw people I hadn't seen in a long time. It was just great to reconnect and see the vibrancy of that ministry. Um, we, uh, you know, I went downtown and we ran into some people we knew in the downtown, just hanging out. And just, it was just a great community day. Later, we went to the, the family night, hosted a uh, roller skating event. So I got to see what some of you were capable of or not capable of on uh, roller skates. Interesting interactions there. Um, you learn the same of me, I suppose. The, uh, anyway, but we go about and we, we interact. And some moments and some interactions and some conversations in any given day are... Uh, you plan for them. You prepare to have a conversation or a talk. For example, my, I was talking with my brother-in-law a few weeks ago. He had a big interview, and he was describing to me how he was going to prepare for his interview. He said, you know, I'm going to comb my hair a certain way, and I got to, it's a, it was an online a Skype interview. So he said, I got to clean up my office behind me because he tends to operate well in cluttered space. But he wanted to look more organized, and he was going to prepare and kind of coach himself to be ready for this. And he, so he would just be ready for the conversation. Probably the most extreme example of this is if you were to have a critical life conversation, say you were going to ask somebody to marry you, as, as I did uh, one time. And I, I had to think about this. How is this going to go down? Everything had to be perfect. I had to get the right place and the right timing. And I had the ring ready. And I took uh, Clancy. We met at a, a summer camp, and we went to this I took her back to this camp in the wintertime. It was all closed up and the snow was on the ground. And it, everything was perfect. And I got to the moment where I was going to get down in the snow and ask her to marry me, get the ring on her finger. That was my main goal. But what I saw, because it was winter, was she had on large mittens. <laughs> and somehow, because I put so much thought into this, that's not how I pictured it. I'm picturing bare hands to put the ring on. And it seemed an insurmountable obstacle that she was wearing these mittens. And I started to get very nervous and did not know what to do. So the moment came when it was time to pop the question. And I, I looked at her hands with these huge mittens. And I just grabbed them and threw them behind me into the snow. And she, they magically bare hands. And I asked her to marry me. She said yes, of course. And I got the ring on her finger. We retrieved her gloves. And, but I was, I was just very prepared with how I wanted this to go down. In life, though, a lot of the interactions we have with each other, 
coworkers, with people in our community. They're not interactions that you plan for. You're not necessarily ready for. And one of the instances where that happens is if somebody asks you about your faith, or they ask you about your life, and there comes the moment when you could speak of your faith, you could speak of Jesus, and we can get nervous, and fear can take over, and all kinds of things can happen in that moment. And in this passage of Scripture today, Peter is teaching these Christians, listen, you're going to be living a way of life that is going to provoke questions because it's different than the way the world lives. And when that question comes, just be ready. Be ready to speak of your hope and your faith and of Jesus. And do it gently and do it respectfully, but be ready. And so this morning, my hope is that we will prepare our hearts, at least in some way, to take a step to be ready for that moment when somebody may ask you about your hope, about your faith, and that we might be people who respond well in those times. So let's pray as we approach this text. Father God, thank you. And Lord, there's so much going on in, this, in the life of this church and in our lives, and we just pray your wisdom and your, your blessing over these things that, of how to best live out our faith, Lord. Because you've called us to be your people everywhere. We want to be obedient to that, Lord. So as we look at your word, we pray that you just give us hearts that are open to learn what you want us to learn this morning. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, three types of interactions are described in this passage. One is a Christian's interaction with each other. The other is a Christian's interaction with God and then Christian's interaction with the world around them. And I want to, that's why I want to focus our time on the third one. But let's take a look at the first two. This is how Christians interact with each other. Peter says, here's five characteristics of things you should pursue. Verse 8. Verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Just beautiful things that we pursue together as God's people. That we are like-minded. That doesn't mean we're like each other, that we agree on everything. We have different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, but political persuasions, and places where we've come from. But God has called us to be like-minded, that his Holy Spirit unites his people. And we need to pursue that and seek to foster that. Second thing is sympathy. Just knowing one another well enough, loving one another to, to know where each other hurts and, and what we struggle with and what we celebrate. And we, we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Uh, love, he says, this is brotherly love, the, the Greek word philadelphoi. It's a, a beyond a deep friendship. It's intentionally uh, investing our lives into one another. Love, brotherly love for each other. Compassion or tenderheartedness. Uh, just a beautiful way of just being gentle, compassion, knowing that we all need forgiveness and we all need healing in our lives and we treat each other gently. Humility. Christian humility is a beautiful thing. And again, all these things are not necessarily our default. Some of us more than others, but we have to foster these things. And that's why Peter is teaching. You've got to work on these things. Humility, Dr. Tim Keller, he says, gospel humility is not thinking less of yourself, nor is it thinking more of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. We tend to be people who connect things to ourselves and we have interactions and conversations and is this to my advantage, is this to my benefit, or how does this, oh, I, that happened to me one time, or how does this connect with my life? But humility allows us to just forget about ourselves and be present for others 
and pursue the needs of others. And it, anyway, these five things together are just a beautiful way of love and of life and we can interact with each other. He also gives us in verse 9 one thing to avoid. So as we pursue these five things, we do avoid revenge, essentially. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, that you may inherit a blessing. What he's saying is, look, in Jesus Christ, you have every spiritual blessing that exists. That's what you're destined for. Your inheritance is eternal life and eternal fellowship with God in this beautiful life that you've been given. Just behave that way. So when you're wronged, when you're insulted, when, when, you are, when evil is done to you, you don't have to seek revenge. That's God's job. God will take care of those things. You are blessed. You can be a blessing. And it's a beautiful way of life. That's how we interact with each other. But we also interact with God. And we see this in verses 10 through 12. And he's, this is a long quote from Psalm 34. So Peter is quoting a psalm. He says, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What he's saying is, God is watching you, and his, he wants to turn his face towards you, and he wants to hear your prayer, and he, he wants to be in great fellowship with you. So we, to pursue that and to foster that, we do, we do good. We seek peace. We avoid evil. We, we live in, in obedient life to God. Now, of course, you may read these verses and feel a little bit threatened. Well, God's eyes are on me, and if I'm evil, he's, gonna, you know, he's out to get me. But that's not... That's not the case. God wants to give us more of himself. And again, even as Christians, we struggle with our sinful nature. And this is, to be a Christian is to be at war. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That we are, we're battling to, to be obedient and to put away evil. And as we pursue good things, it's not that we're earning anything from God, but we just experience more of God as we walk with him in obedience. And obedience is a beautiful response to God's grace. And it, 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 our prayer life comes alive as we are obedient and we experience him in this way. This is just a, a beautiful way of life interacting with God. Not to get something from God, but just to get more of God. So it's a very freeing kind of idea. So we have these things that we pursue with each other. We have this, this way of inter interacting with each other, way of interacting with God now. This is, he shifts to talk about our interactions with the outside world. So now look at verse 13. Peter says to the Christians, he says, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And he's quoting Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 8 there. He says, look, if you live this way of life, treating people this way and interacting with God... People aren't going to hurt you. This is a beautiful way of life. But even if you do get hurt for this way of life, you're still blessed. Think about who's writing this. This is Peter, the disciple Peter. He's saying, don't be afraid of people. Don't worry. Don't feel threatened by people. You can live your faith. But Peter's the one 
who when he was afraid, he denied he even knew Jesus. It was the night Jesus was arrested, and they, they said, well, you were with him. He said, no, I don't know the man. I don't, don't even know who he is. I'm not one of his associates. He was afraid, and he responded in fear, and that is a very natural response. I've talked to people, and I've felt it myself. It, when it comes time to speak of your faith to the non-believing world, it can be frightening. What will people think of me? Will they think I'm one of those Christians or one of those religious nuts? What will this do to my reputation or what will my coworkers think of me if they know? Fear can be right there. And yet Peter says, look, don't be afraid because he experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. And he lived a very bold life of, in the face of being arrested and persecuted in many ways. Went from place to place just proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. That Jesus died and rose again and we can have new life in him. And he just was bold and bold and he's saying, listen, I know. I know about fear, and I know fear can take over. He said, don't be afraid. How, if you're going to be afraid of anything, be afraid of the God who holds all of life and death in his hands. Worry about what he thinks of you, not, not what other people think of you. The worst they can do is kill you. And even then, you are blessed in your death. Because Jesus lived a perfect life of love and of pursuing peace, yet he was accused of evil. He was, uh, he was killed. He died on the cross, but he was victorious over even life and death. And he's given us this, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It gives us new life by his indwelling spirit. And this is, even in death, you cannot be harmed. So just don't be afraid. But, so don't be afraid, but look at verse 15. But be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do you see the contrast here? He said, look, don't be afraid of people when you, know, when you interact with outsiders, but be ready. Be ready to speak. Somebody's going to ask you, what, what's your deal? What's your hope? What, what gets you up in the morning? What is this life you live? Here's an opportunity. Peter says, just be ready for that. As followers of Jesus Christ, if we live this way of life with each other, life of love and humility and compassion and sympathy and like-mindedness, and as we interact with God just seeking to be obedient to him and experience his presence and, and a vibrant prayer with him, this is a way of life that will provoke questions. And when the questions come, don't be surprised. Just be ready to give an answer. And it's great. It, because we don't have to create the moment. You don't have to force it. It's gonna, people are going to ask you. So we need to be ready. So we need to, gentleness and respect are the two words that Peter uses to describe how to do this. Look, you're not, when somebody asks you about your faith, that's not your opportunity to blast them for their incorrect and sinful worldview, prove them wrong, or to get defensive. You, you know, it's, again, we believe that we can't convert anybody, that God is at work in the hearts of people. But God has invited us to be part of what he's doing in turning people away from sin and towards himself. So we can just gently speak of, of Jesus. But we do need to speak of Jesus. If people ask you, you can say, you know, oh, my, my faith, but use the word Jesus, my faith in Jesus. 
You know, not just my relationship with God, but my relationship with God through Jesus. Again, we're called to give a reason for our hope. Our only hope is Jesus. So we speak of Jesus. We speak gently and respectfully of Jesus, remembering you were once lost too. Remembering that there was, there was nothing special about you that God would extend his grace to you. Prayerful for people that God could open anybody's heart. So we just need to be ready. Now, as a, as a practical thing, I want to give you a little bit, just sort of uh, something to think about as, as, we, as we do this. Now, we know that at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the fact that we are all, like sheep, gone astray. We've all sinned, and that we need a Savior. We need forgiveness. We need to be reconciled to God, and Jesus has provided the way through the cross to be reconciled to God. But the, the issue is people don't wake up in the morning and feel sinful and guilty, typically. Sometimes people do, and they might actually just pray for forgiveness. But most people don't walk around feeling like guilty sinners. But people do feel stuck. They feel stuck in life or they feel hung up on something and they're not sure what the answer is. And that's often an entry point to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, because what they're feeling is a symptom of uh, uh, turning from God. And I want to share with you what I'm going to call the four G's. These aren't original to me. Uh, the four G's I got out of a book called Everyday Church, which I've mentioned a few times by the authors are Chester and Timmis. And I commend it to you if you are interested in this to learn more about it. A lot of the same themes that we've been talking about in the sermon series. But here's the four G's of the gospel. These are, now again, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you happier. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you more successful. Jesus died on the cross to rescue you from your sin, to purchase you, to claim you for himself and give you new life, to make you new not just make you better or happier. But when people's felt needs do intersect with the reality of that. So here's our four Gs. Uh, the first G is that God is great, so we don't have to be in control. The truth of, of who God is, that he's powerful and sovereign, and there's a lot in life that we don't have control over, but we know that. So there's great comfort and hope in that. The second G is that God is so glorious we don't have to fear other people. God is so glorious that you know, we could live our lives trying to please other people and be thought well of and, and be, just try to impress people. But God is so glorious. He's the only one we need to impress. And he's provided everything we need to be accepted by him. The third G is that God is good. It means God is satisfying, so we don't need to look elsewhere. And of course, people... We are prone, and people everywhere are prone to look to things in this world to give us satisfaction, whether it's possession or, or thrills or success or excitement or whatever it is. But we know that God is so good that we don't need to pursue all those other things. The fourth G is that God is gracious. That means that God forgives us for our weakness, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't always have to make up for our wrongs because God has provided them. Those are the four Gs. Now, when you interact with somebody often whatever their issue is might connect with one of those four categories. I'll give you two examples. One is, let's say, you got a coworker, a family member, a neighbor who is just so 
busy all the time. And they're just on the brink of burnout. And they're just on the go, constantly, constantly. And they, they ask you, how do you cope? You don't seem to be on the brink of burnout. What's, what is the hope you have? Now, here's your chance to share. Now, they might be busy because they don't believe that God is great. That they need to try to control everything in life. And they just have to stay busy and they, they're juggling all these balls in the air. But they forget that, they, or they don't know that God is sovereign and good and in control of all things. Or maybe it's number two. Maybe they, uh, they don't trust in, in, in God's being so glorious that they're, they can't say no to people. And they're afraid of what people will think of them. So they say yes to everything. And they've now created a life that's just chaotic and busy and on the brink of burnout. Because... They're afraid of other people's opinion, trying to please everybody. Where God's opinion is the one that matters. Maybe it's number three. Maybe, maybe they're just so busy because they're trying to fill a void in their life and pursuing lots of different things just to uh, find satisfaction. And when God is the true source of, of hope and joy. Or maybe it's more number four. They're just... Somebody is so busy because they're trying to prove themselves and prove that, you know, through their work or that, that they have value in life and that they're, you know, making up for lost time or whatever it is. And they don't know that, you know, God justifies freely through the completed work of Jesus. You see how, and that's just your busy friend or your overworked person in your neighborhood. <clears throat> Let me give you another example where the four G's could come in. Say you know somebody who's angry. You're just their default reaction to everything is just anger. You got the angry coworker, your angry neighbor, whoever it is, angry family member. You know why? And they say, "Hey, what's your what's your deal? What's your hope? You don't seem to be angry all the time. What is it?" Well, maybe they're angry because <clears throat> their <clears throat> things that are out of their control. Can't be controlled. And they're just, they're angry because there's a loss or a sickness or some kind of disaster. And you just, they're just angry because it's out of control. And God's the one who's in control. Maybe they're angry because they're, uh, they're worried about what other people think of them. And, and the opinion of other people isn't what they wanted. So they're trying to impress the boss, but the, the boss isn't giving them the credit or seeing it or doesn't value them. And, and now, those I'm trying to impress aren't impressed and now I'm angry. Or maybe something they're pursuing to fulfill them the, under, under the third, you know, God is so good. Maybe something they're pursuing has, has failed or they're not, not able to do it anymore or it's threatened, a relationship is threatened or a family member, something is threatened and you're just responding in anger because that thing that's threatened is going to fulfill me, they think. Or maybe it's the fourth thing. Maybe uh, they don't believe God is so gracious. You know, somebody who's trying to prove themselves, you know, you get angry at somebody else's success because I'm trying, I'm working so hard to prove myself. Now when somebody else gets ahead, I'm just frustrated and angry. And again, now here's an open door. In any of those, whatever category it fits in, here's an open door to just speak. Here's, the, here's what Jesus has done for me. Here's how I understand God. And you can speak gently and respectfully about your faith. Okay, so if that's helpful to you, great. If not, no worries, but just that you just need to be ready. The other thing you can do is to ask good questions. That's what Jesus did when people asked him questions of, you know, great questions of life and faith. 
You know, somebody once went to him and said, you know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what do you mean by that? Why do you call me good? You know, and he just kind of puts it back on this questioner, a good question to understand someone's heart so that as you speak, you, you understand where they're coming from. So two questions, and I learned these from the guys who, uh, Dan and Tim, who shared at the men's breakfast a couple months ago. They said, just ask good questions, two easy questions. The first one is, what do you mean by that? And the second question is, how did you come to that conclusion? So when somebody asks you a question about faith or about your hope, you, you might want to say, well, what do you mean by that? I'll give you an example. Uh, I was in a conversation with someone I care a lot about and asked me, do you believe that the Bible is literally true? And I was inclined to say yes, but I wasn't exactly sure what this person was getting at. I said, what do you mean by that? And what this person meant by asking me if I thought the Bible was literally true, what they were asking is, do you believe that you can take any Old Testament law and just apply it today to anybody in the world? Which I don't think is true. So by asking what do you mean by that, was able to redirect the conversation in a way that was more helpful. As opposed to if I had just said yes, would have uh, went in a bad direction. Instead, I, and then I went on to say, I believe the Bible is literarily true and there's different literary genres and I went into this whole thing and it was really unhelpful and the conversation didn't go well. So, it's not a good example. But if it was, you could, you could ask good questions. What do you mean by that? How do you come to that conclusion? Sometimes people say, well, God would never do this or God doesn't do this or that. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? I'm just, just curious and then you get a sense of someone's heart. So, all right, to wrap, to sort of bring this all together. We live, we interact with each other. We love each other. We interact with God, a God who is, his eyes are on us, his, we want his face towards us, and we live a life of obedience. And, and we interact with the world around us. And as we live this way of life, it's going to provoke questions, and we just be ready to speak. Speak with gentleness, speak with respect, speak of Jesus, and may we be people who, who live this way of life together. Amen.